The reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 to 12. So I invite your reverent and joyful hearing of the Word of God in faith. So Isaiah chapter 58. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself? from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Uh, the prophet Isaiah is uh, continuing uh, this controversy uh, that the nation is undergoing regarding an external form of the faith, uh, particularly uh, fasting. Uh, interesting subject, is it not? Uh, you all ever fast? Again, uh, for the glory of God. Well, the nation of Israel was, and they're saying, Lord, we've done our part. Why haven't you blessed us? Why haven't you fixed our plumbing? Uh, why is uh, why is it that I've gone through a broken relationship? And I've done my part. Why aren't you doing yours? And so God begins to answer their complaint with uh, uh, with reality that our faith is much more than just an external form. It is that, to be sure. There is an external part of our faith that is vitally important. Going to church. Partaking of the sacraments. Uh, if you haven't been baptized, uh, that you are baptized. That external form is mandated in Scripture, but again, it's never enough. There must be a humble heart, a heart that's uh, given uh, to the greatness of uh, God, a heart uh, that is uh, a heart of love for God, as well as love for one's countrymen. So the external form, united with this heart, is what God is looking for in the life of the nation, but really our our life, our church. Uh, the external form, vitally important, but as well uh, the internal expression of love for God, love for neighbor. What happens when those things collide and come together? 
Isaiah tells us, revival. Doesn't necessarily speak to the form or the intensity of the revival, but revival occurs. Uh, so let's look at the text. Uh, God answers with the proper use of fasting in verses 6 to 7, and its blessings in verses uh, 8 to 12. So God's not against fasting, but it must not be self-serving. It's what the nation was doing. They, you know, God, we've given to you, now, now pay up. Pay us back for our sacrifice. Uh, pay up uh, if you want us to keep practicing the external form. Uh, in my own mind, fasting in this text is a figure of speech uh, that is, uh, for me, a, a part for really the whole. Fasting is a part of external worship of God, external form of the faith, but it really en- encompasses every external form. Uh, so it goes way beyond fasting. Uh, and it follows in our, our text uh, an if-then pattern. The technical words for, for that is the protesis, if. If you do this, uh, then the apotesis, or the then, then God's going to respond in this particular way. So it's an if-then. If you look at the text, uh, verse 6, if you loosen the bonds of wickedness, if you undo the bonds of the yoke, I'll stop there, uh, the then pattern uh, picks up in, in verse 8. Then the light will break out like dawn. On and on. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. Uh, and then it repeats itself, if pattern, uh, latter part of uh, verse 9. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking speaking of wickedness. Uh, I, I love the pointing of the finger. People just love to point fingers and get in your face and, and uh, describe... Uh, Everything about your life more than they ever knew or want to know. Uh, but again, again, the then pattern, uh, second part of verse 10. Then your light will arise in darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. Then the Lord will continually guide you. So again, just suggesting you that the form of this text is if, if then pattern. And it really breaks upon the essentials of, of the collusion of external form. There must be external form. United with uh, the internal reality of, of love uh, in the expression of the external form. So don't just come to church. Well, I, I checked that box for the day. I got my week covered. I, I, I did my duty, tiresome as it was, between uh, 11 and 12. No, there must be the heart, the engagement of the heart. Uh, then God uh, is going to bless the church. So verse 6 sets the stage for the fasting that God chooses. Uh, the totality of the external form. Uh, and succinctly in the text, we learn that true faith uh, is going to engage social justice. So we have here, again, another, another uh, collision, if you will, of external form colliding with social justice, which is nothing more than love of brethren. Love of brethren. Uh, so it's a rejoinder against a faith that is blind to injustice. Uh, it's a rejoinder to a faith that just practices the external form, but is blind uh, to a brother that's in profound need. I mean, it's the old saw, is it not, of love God, practice the external form, and then love your neighbor, 
And the collision of those two things has a radical effect on the life of the church, verses 8 to 12. Uh, so, so what is the uh, social injustice? Well, first, we're to leave behind the bonds of wickedness. Okay? You can't practice the external form of faith while you know you're doing things you ought not to be doing. Psalm 68, 66, pardon me, if I regard the Lord with iniquity in my heart, he won't, won't hear me. Yes, he hears you, but he's not going to answer you. He's going to turn to blind eyes. He's going to turn his back. You can't go to God knowing that you're overtly breaking the scripture and expect God to do things. This doesn't work that way. He wants more than the external form. He wants the internal reservations of the heart to set evil and injustice aside. Secondly, uh, true faith is to engage oppression. And so uh, Isaiah says, undo the the bands of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was a legal protocol for releasing slaves. Well, they had problems with that. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, a quick way to get rich is to have people working for you for free and abuse them in the process. Uh, we struggle with that in our own country, have we not? Uh, but God says you have to engage social justice as an expression of love. Uh, the external form is an expression of love for God, but there must be the heart that reaches out in social justice. Uh, in our culture, we might say faith that coexists with abuse and prejudice is condemned. Uh, you can't say you love God and then hate your brother. Uh, you can't say you love God and engage in lawsuits against your brother. Uh, again, the scriptures uh, engages all of these factors, but it's nothing more than the external form, loving God, colliding with the internal form of loving a true heart, reaching out, loving your neighbor. Uh, thirdly, verse 7, you're to share with the hungry. Take care of the homeless, the naked. You're not to hide yourself for those in need. I, I catch myself in this all the time. I pull up to the corner and there's a... There's a guy uh, wanting money. I say to myself, well, I hope he didn't notice me. Uh, so I can hurry on through the intersection and uh, you know not have to engage. Again, sometimes that thought crosses my mind. Uh, among other thoughts, like is this just a panhandler that... Uh, whatever, you can fill in the blanks. But it is a reminder that there is always social injustice and the church is not to be silent. Uh, if you paid attention to the reading of this text and the address of dealing with the hungry, the homeless, and the naked, Jesus alludes to this text uh, in a very powerful, uh, intensive way in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, it's a very interesting context because it's a division in the great end-time judgment. And how's the division made based upon Isaiah chapter 58 and the words of our Lord alluding to Isaiah chapter 58? So it's a very important text. Uh, the end times, when God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, how will he do it? Upon what basis will he do it? Well, again, answered that uh, text in terms of Isaiah chapter uh, 58. Let's read Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 36.
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The other interesting thing about this text is another great illusion that overpowers it all, uh, and that is verse 31. There's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The great coming of the Son of Man. And he receives from God the Father eternal, everlasting dominion because of what he has done. He became hungry. He became thirsty. He was stripped and naked, suffered upon the cross. And uh, God gives him this reward of eternal dominion and glory uh, given to the Son of Man for his faithful service in serving his brethren. It's a clear attestation to the deity of Christ. For in Matthew, he sits upon that throne. Again, Matthew 25, verse 31. He will sit on the glorious throne. Great attestation of the majesty of a Christ whom we serve because of who he is, the Son of Man, the exalted King, who will rule and here, of course, uh, make pronouncement of uh, the separation of the lost and the saved. It's interesting that in the interpretive portion of uh, the vision of Daniel uh, 7, it speaks to the suffering and hardships of the people of God uh, in their advancing of the kingdom. And in laboring to advance the gospel, they become hungry, they become thirsty, they are naked, they are thrown in prison. And their identity with Christ is essential because like him, they suffer loss. It's a point, I think, of the text. And the context in Matthew is the blessing and curses upon those who either help them or who do not help them. It is well context of the final separation judgment and gathering of the people of God into their eternal reward. And what follows is the reason the elect are received into eternal blessings. Specifically, it's a reference to their treatment of Christ. Again, look at verse 35, Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And the faithful ask, when did we do this? I mean, you and I might ask that question. We, we don't have the ability to give to Christ uh, food and drink and to clothe him and to visit him in prison. So it's a, it's a very valid question. When did we do this? Look at the answer Jesus gives in verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. It's a profound exponential treatment of Isaiah chapter 58 that in social justice to the brothers of Christ we are giving to him and based upon that there is eternal reward passed to the church to the saints it's an attestation to the corporate solidarity of the people of God that we are so united to Christ and he with us that when we serve his people when they are hungry and naked and imprisoned, we are, we are literally serving Him. In other words, caring for the people of God wounded in service 
It's the greater fulfillment of Isaiah 58 as a definition of true faith. Again, it's the unity of external form united with a heart of love in service to Christ. So, think about it in this way. And our Lord really defines what that means. Uh, verse 40. When, when you do it, when you do it to my brothers, you're doing it to me. So again, the church has a specific call in terms of social justice, particularly caring uh, for the sons of Christ, acknowledging that in that caring, they are giving and ministering to Christ. That form plus love expressed in social justice is a definition of true faith. Think about that in terms of of our duty to the world uh, to practice the external form of the faith united with a heart of love in caring for the sons of Christ. Of course, in terms of an application, I do remind you, uh, because the world and the culture in which you and I live is filled with calls for social justice. But I would simply uh, add the most radical appendage to that, that social justice by itself is not the gospel. And social justice practiced absent the gospel will only have reward in this world. I mean, that's why we name streets after philanthropists. That's why we go to a university and name a dorm after some uh, rich donor. But absent the gospel and absent Christ and absent being a brother of Christ, that's the only reward they're going to get. That's the best they're going to get. I'm not necessarily against that. We need civilization. But the heart of the church is to advance the gospel and to care for the brothers of Christ who belong to him and who know him. So again, it's this rejoinder, I think, that's continually in this text that form is important, but the heart is just as important and that they both must be present. Something else about the form here that I think is a radical application of this text. Uh, church in our culture is constantly changing. Uh, here it's not changing at all. Isaiah chapter 58, Matthew chapter 25. There's the external form. There's the heart of service. But there's no new doctrine brought into the life of the church. There's no new form brought into the life of the church. It's an old form expressed in the heart of love, united with the external forms of the faith. Nothing really new here. And absolutely no new doctrine whatsoever. That's where I think, in many respects, the church is wandering in the commandments of God, bringing in stuff that's new, when they really just need to practice what is old in the faith. So the external form, verses 6 and 7, practiced with a heart of love. How does God respond? Well, the answer is revival, verses 8 to 12. And the results here are stunning. It's almost as if floodgates open and God rains upon the church incredible blessings. Let's read, for example, uh, Isaiah 58, 
verses 8 and 9. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, here I am. God is telling us, of course, the great blessings that will reign upon his people if there's this collision of external form as well as the internal heart humbly serving God uh, in love of neighbor. So first there's light. Uh, The effect is immediate in reference to the dawn. Light in Scripture is a metaphor for salvation, that God blesses the church spiritually. Uh, John, I think, echoes this in his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Simply another way to express Isaiah chapter 58, as well as Matthew chapter 25. It's interesting that John John says the darkness is passing away. It's literally in the text, it's passed away. It's a passive element to it. It's difficult to translate this way because you and I know that the old creation still stands. What are evidences of the old creation that we need to shun? Well, hatred, pride, arrogance, selfishness, refusing, refusing to help a brother of Christ when we have the means to so help. Those are evidences of the old creation. John says it's passed away because it suffered a violent disruption and defeat with the cross. It's a good reminder to us that because of the cross, the love of Christ to us, that we did not deserve, that we could not merit, that we could not earn. He simply loved us. We were naked and he clothed us with his righteousness. We were hungry and he gave himself for us to eat that we might live forever. We were thirsty and he shed his blood that we might drink to quench our thirst. He did everything of Isaiah chapter 58. In Matthew chapter 25, to come along our side because he loved us. It's a reminder to us that we are to carry the same to the world. Conversely, John says the light is shining. The new creation has begun. But there's this cataclysmic collision in the world today of true love, the new creation, and hatred and selfishness and pride and arrogance in the old creation Guess which one is going to win? The new creation will overcome and overtake and defeat. And you and I are to be part of the new. We're to reject pride, selfishness, and hatred, and self-serving, and arrogance, and spinning of rumors, and the like. Uh, To love, to love, to express in external form the internal reality of what God did for us in his Son. Again, love plus form is transformational. The light in the church will shine. The darkness will retreat. Second, recovery or restoration breaks out as a reference, I think, to spiritual healing. Uh, 
We sometimes uh, talk about this in the life of the church. Uh, I think chiefly healing uh, is, is a spiritual event because our lives are broken, shattered, and God comes to heal us spiritually. Evidence, says, evidence of this in Jeremiah chapter 33 and uh, the sixth verse, a reference to God coming in a spiritual way uh, to heal. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I will heal them. And I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I'm not suggesting that there's not physical healing in the life of God's people. There obviously is. But first and foremost, we need to be spiritually healed. And that's where God interdicts us in His grace. He brings spiritual health and spiritual revival. Thirdly, righteousness goes before you as a reference to, I think, the reputation of the church. Uh, That one of the reasons we ought to be zealous about uniting external form to the heart in service to God and the brothers of Christ is to expand the reputation of what God does in His Son. Next, Isaiah says the glory of God will be your rear, rear guard. Look at a text that we spoke to a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 12. But you will not go out in haste, nor you will go out as fugitives. It's a reference to the Exodus. And notice the explanation the prophet gives. So the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. The imagery, is, of course, is of the first exodus, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, leading as a rear guard and a vanguard, protecting the people of God. In my own mind, it's something that harkens me back to a previous time in my own life in, in the military. Uh, that when a ground unit is always on the move, it always has scouts out front to keep it from being ambushed, to warn it of impending danger. It also has a rear guard so that someone doesn't sneak up behind them. That's what God is to us. He's our vanguard and He's our rear guard. That He protects us as His people. It's a reminder of the blessings that accrue to us when we do that which the prophet is telling us to do Practicing the external form, united with a heart of faith and love. That God comes and He leads us and He guides us and He protects our rear. That we are marching in this last great exodus and before us is God and behind us is God. What a great reminder of the provision of God. The simplicity of the practice of our faith. External form, united with a heart. And God comes to bless us. Fifthly, God responds to our needs with help. Verse 9, then you will call, and the Lord will answer. And you will cry, and God will say, here I am. For us, it has fulfillment and a great, great commission. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So the promise of Christ is our 
our scouting party going before us. He's our rear guard protecting us as we advance. He's with us always. We cannot be defeated. Uh, some churches have this theology that uh, Christ will come and go in your life. It's absolutely incorrect. It's a violation of the great promise of the Lord that he's with us always. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. Uh, great, great reminder. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not of. It's a reminder of the blessing of the church. We can call upon the Lord and he will answer. When we take care of the things that are essential in our lives, the external form with the internal reality of the heart, that God draws near to us in a special way, fixing our lives, reviving us, strengthening us from within, advancing us and being our rear guard. We call upon him to do great and mighty things, to advance his kingdom. Another reminder for us is the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The gates of hell will destroy all who are outside of Christ, but it cannot even think of touching us because of Christ as our protector. I love the particular promise in verse 10. Uh, your light will rise and gloom will dissipate. Sometimes as Christians we get the blues. Well, maybe you don't, but I'll confess I do. You get the blues and you start singing the great hymn, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. All those things are certainly true of me. You go into your room and you pull the shade and you want darkness to envelop you. I think one of the things that Isaiah is telling us in serving God is that when you serve the brothers of Christ, you are reminded of the richness of your blessings so much so that even the gloom of your own life will dissipate. Let me illustrate to you this way. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, singing this uh, favorite hymn that people have, Woe Is Me, and I turned on the television, and it was a family that was having a family reunion. It's in Lebanon. They were having a family reunion until an artillery shell landed in their very midst. And I said to myself, I don't really have that much to be gloomy about, do I? It's a reminder of the blessings that we have. The measures that Christ pours upon us. Uh, the greatness of his presence. Reminding us continually of his goodness. How do we come to that knowledge? We'll serve people who are less fortunate than yourselves. And the gloom has a way of dissipating. And so that when we love our brothers in Christ who are naked, who have been imprisoned, who are hungry and thirsty, as a, has a way of reminding us of the richness of our blessing and that God has placed us here for greater purposes than serving ourselves and holding fast to everything that we think that we have and that the world owes us. Verse 11, the Lord will guide you and satisfy your desires. Notice, notice the text. Satisfies your desires in scorched places. I remind you that God has not totally and finally lifted the effects of the fall. 
He will lead us sometimes into difficult places. The point is that he's leading us. And if he led us there, he'll lead us out of there. The reminder of the great Psalm 23. He will lead us eventually to the still waters, and he will restore our soul. Be very careful of isolating your life to a particular event or time. God is not finished with any of us yet. He's going to lead us, and we're going to get there because he's pledged his presence. He never lies. His promises are sure and true. Eventually, we'll get to the still waters and the green pastures. It's a great reminder to us that when we're in those scorched, difficult, dry places, the hand of God is still upon us. He knows what he's doing. He has perfect knowledge. Does things purposefully. We ought to rejoice that even in difficult times in our life, we're there for a reason, for a purpose, to glorify God and to advance his kingdom. And to be ever mindful to continue to practice the external form, united with a heart of love in social justice, caring for the brothers of Christ. The brothers of Christ, great expression of love, because God so loved us in his Son, that we were thirsty and he shed his blood. We were hungry and he gave us his body. We were naked and he clothed us with eternal righteousness, will cause us to shine like the brightest of stars, time and world without end. Uh, Again, sometimes churches believe that the Lord leaves us to wander self-directed. It's entirely false theology. He guides his people. It's a reality of, if you will, the first exodus, uh, the pillar of fire, the cloud, from front to back, leading the children of Israel that they might escape Pharaoh. In our exodus, uh, he's leading us by his great spirit that the forces of darkness, the Pharaoh, our arch enemy Satan, cannot close upon us and destroy us because the spirit is leading us. Uh, Again, Romans chapter 8 and verse verse 14. As many as are the sons of God, these are being led by the spirit of God. In our exodus, the spirit is our cloud and fire. And the kingdom of hell cannot close upon us to affect our destruction. God provides. And again, it does include difficult places. As our Savior went to difficult places, like his testing in the wilderness, you and I will live in a measure of similar experience. Again, but God, God will come. God will provide. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 20. Because I've given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Again, the people were thirsty and God gave them drink. Chapter 44, in verse 3. I'll pour out waters on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. Again, it breaks for us in the fullness of the reality of the majesty of Christ. A prominent place, uh, John chapter 4 and the 14th verse. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but of the waters that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
breaks upon us the provision of Christ in spirit. This metaphor of, of water having its uh, final and greatest of all applications. Uh, again, a familiar text, Revelation uh, 22 and verse 1, He showed me a river of the water of life, clearest crystal coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. You and I return, if you will, to the watered garden, which is exactly, exactly the language that Isaiah uses in 58.11. You will be like a watered garden, breaking upon us from the Son of God, realized in the work of the Spirit, and then we finally come home to the river of the water of life. Again, set against this cataclysmic imagery of the world that you and I live in, where everything seems to be turning brown, everything drying up, incredible crises that jump from one to another, Always we read it in the paper, we hear it on the news, that you and I are passing through that land and God is watering us all the way. And we will come to the end because of the provision of Christ in the Spirit. Uh, lastly, here, uh, uh, the, the revival that God brings upon uh, the life of the church uh, that uh, uh, men will repair the breach and restore the streets uh, in which uh, we dwell. Uh, perhaps a, uh, a reminder that uh, the great work of God is a building, the end-time temple, and in the exercise of our gifts, uh, we are laying spiritual bricks for a spiritual building for the glory of Christ, uh, laboring for the edification of the church, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter uh, 5, uh, that is, gifted men and women use their spiritual gifts in faith and love, united to the external form that God defines for us in Scripture. The end-time temple is revived, advances, and expands. This New Testament application of this, a very familiar uh, verse, uh, book of James. Uh, book of James, the first chapter. Verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained, unstained by the world. The external form, charged with a heart of love, advances the faith, keeps us from being stained by the world uh, as we reach out to widows and orphans, advancing the faith. We do it, of course, particularly to the brothers of Christ. I remind you in a couple of months, uh, the hoax will come, in a particular way, uh, raising uh, funds for their ministry in Uganda. But there's another purpose there in my own mind. Uh, I hope that we can uh, raise uh, monies for a particular minister to go into the jungles of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to minister to tribespeople there, the pygmies, to provide for them in their incredible poverty. A particular emphasis of this young man is to uh, build a dispensary so that uh, uh, women uh, in childbearing won't bleed to death or 
uh, experience sepsis and die from infections. So you want to engage the external form of the faith? United with a heart of love, here's an occasion to do so. Give uh, to the ladies who live in the jungles of the Congo. And uh, God in his own way will give in a remarkable way back to you in spiritual revival, in reforming our lives, in reforming the church, uh, going before us as a vanguard and a rear guard with his majestic glory. So Isaiah chapter 58 is reminding us of a very simple fact of our faith. External form. United to a heart. You have to have both. You can't say, I I don't like the external form. I'm going to withdraw from the, the church and I'll just have my own worship with a heart of love. No, that's a violation of the text. It's a violation of Isaiah chapter 58. It's a violation of Matthew chapter 25. It's a violation of James chapter 1. True religion is form and function, loving God according to his external form, and loving the brothers of Christ with a heart of love. That's how God revives the church, when both are present. That true faith unites form in the heart and love of neighbor. What does God do? He blesses with revival. He blesses with a revival. I can't really speak to the intensity of the revival because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But the reality of it is present in the text. He revives his people. He revives their reputation. He revives their broken hearts. He revives them to serve because in their service, they're serving Christ who served them. That is the point of the text, that we serve others because he served us and gave to us when we were hungry and thirsty and naked and imprisoned in our service and advancing his kingdom. So at Grace Bible Church, we're to do both. The form, the heart. And I assure you, I assure you, God will provide. And God will revive. And great things will happen. And so let us so labor and may God so bless as his text so promises us for his glory.